Hello and welcome to the Telecom Electronic Beats podcast with me, Whitney Way. I'm the editor-in-chief of Electronic Beats, and in this podcast, we meet with the musicians, creatives, and characters driving forward culture today. Join me in discovering how our guests create bold visions and brighter futures. button and was instantaneously immersed in red water. I was in a photography darkroom and from my perspective in this incarnadine bath, I saw a pair of black plastic gloves shuffling around developing images of Mithridates fall winter 2021 line. From here, my digital experience unfolded. In one second, sans serif alphabet letters fell into lines of free association poetry before floating off. In another, I was exploring a cylindrical tower of photos of the collection, placed at the center of a 3D-sculpted stately white palazzo. QR codes, scattered throughout, opened onto my Instagram, allowing me to assume the same blooming spore-like black and brown faceplates as the model in the fashion film. Meanwhile, in the background, the buzzy, glitchy music gave the entire show a moody yet anticipatory hum. Two months ago, it was London Fashion Week, and I, as many others, logged online. The gender-neutral Chinese luxury brand Mithridate just debuted their Automatisse presentation, conceived by the experiential artists Anya Catherine and Deja T. Self-described as a digital opera, their project weaved together performance art, interactive film, augmented reality, poetry, 3D, machine learning, AI, XR face filters, photography, sound, and experimental web design. What's more, every single user experience on the website was unique to the individual. Appropriate to the COVID era, the team that collaborated on the presentation toiled around the world in Los Angeles, Shanghai, Istanbul, London, Washington, D.C., Rome, and Baltimore, and consisted of musician Tony Cruz, XR artist Aaron Jablonski, 3D artist Korean Tian, and Immersive Kind Studios. Art is increasingly working across a plurality of disciplines, and this conversation is a testament to that. Today, we invite Anya, Deja, and Tony, whose music soundtracks the digital subconscious experience, onto the podcast to discuss the evolution of digital art, now center stage during the pandemic, plus the merits and challenges of decentralized technological collaboration. A bit of NFT or non-fungible token discussion ensues as well. Let's dive in. Thank you, everyone, for joining me on this edition of the podcast. Let's start off with introductions. Individually, what do you do in the field of digital art? And what's your background working in creative technologies? And how did you get to where you are today? Anya and Deja, if you'd like to start. Sure. I am Anya Catherine. And I am Deja Tai. And together, Deja and I have a collaborative practice merging performance environments and creative technology. And individually, our backgrounds were pretty different, mine being in choreography and performance art. And mine being in immersive art and human-computer interaction. And a few years ago in 2016, when we met and we started working together, we kind of started making 
total works that we're combining my background and Deja's background. So um, advanced technologies, but also like the organic physicality of the human body and making large scale works that merge both of our backgrounds together into like one cohesive picture. Yeah. And I would say the intro to our practice, um, our collaboration was a little bit more obvious in terms of the bringing together choreography and digital artworks, um, meaning, you know, one of our first works is a piece called Line Scanner, which uses projection mapping and live performance. And I think since then, we've gone to a great extent to kind of erase the digital aspects of our work from the naked eye. And, and also erase the lines between what I do and what Deja does. So mm-hmm. it's not like I just do the things with the body and Deja just does the environmental or um, the more tech central aspects, but kind of figuring out how we can blur and both contribute to the yeah. total picture, which has been super exciting. There's been some role reversals. Some role reversals. <laughs> I'm Tony Cruz. Uh, I'm a sound artist. DJ, music producer, uh, play a little bit of piano, and I do a lot of writing, creative writing, and uh, just working with artists to kind of actualize their, sonify rather, their projects and add a musical creative component to it. I guess around the early 2010s, I um, did a lot of touring and producing for other artists. I Spent some time on the road with Julian Casablancas from uh, The Strokes and The Voids. And um, that kind of led to some pretty awesome sound design projects um, around 2015 and 2016. I started doing music for Instagram ads for Kylie Jenner, for uh, Kendall Jenner, for uh, different brands around the US, the UK, and globally. And Anya Dijon, Tony, and Aaron all collaborated on a recent London Fashion Week presentation called Automatiste. Uh, in the press release, it was described as a digital opera. And could you briefly describe the project and what its intentions were? Sure, yes. So Automatiste was essentially... Um, the idea was we were going to be opening a concept store for the brand called Mithridate. And London then went into tier five lockdown. And as artists and creatives do, we think, what can we do within this context? And um, the way that the industry has been responding generally has been to release a fashion film when nothing can be happening physically. But Deja and I working with technology, being experiential artists and since lockdown, really asking ourselves what it means to have a digital experience versus um, to just view something or passively look at something um, digitally, have been challenging ourselves, looking at what's been happening, how people have tried to replace the idea of an event or an experience online and been like, this is a very good opportunity to figure out what we would do and what this can mean, um, what a digital experiential artwork would actually be like. And so we decided to present the collection through a digital artwork called Automatiste. Yeah. And the thing about Automatiste is that conceptually the work is speaking to the surrealist um, sort of approach of creating automatic art. So we use this, the entire team use this as part of the process of making the work. And Tony and us had uh, spoke about that at length, actually. Um, But the 
the thing that's also interesting about the project is that the way that the audience participant experiences the project is in a chance operation and free association um, sort of um, method. So it's from the creation and as well as the receiving and absorption uh, of, of the work. And it's important to note that you can never experience a tomatis the same way twice. And the way that this happens is um, there's a series of videos, but there's also another dynamic layer on top of subtitles. So you're kind of um, free associating between different subtitles and different imagery. And uh, again, all of that is never presented in the same way twice. Um, there's also other actions that uh, the audience participant could take. Uh, for instance, there's discoverable QR codes that lead you to extended reality filters that uh, Aaron has had built um, to, you know, tie in and extend you into, you know, for instance, the darkroom scene, you know, so you could see our protagonist, uh, Christina, um, you know, in a darkroom, in a live action film setting or our 3D worlds, but then you could transport yourself through an XR filter uh, into that world itself. And I think that these elements that Deja just spoke to in terms of the randomization, the way that we're speaking to the method of automatic art through the process and also through the kind of consumption, but we're letting the mind of the viewer make the associations between a subtitle and an image pairing and Tony's music kind of all at the same time. So we're actually having your mind be trying to make sense of what is the relationship between this statement and this image visually. So it's also interesting that there was a participatory aspect in that regard that without you might think that you're just like watching something passively but actually because of these random pairings your mind is trying to like make associations and you're actively trying to kind of make sense and piece together a narrative while it's happening in front of you um, and in addition to that like Deja said you're able to not just look at the world but you're actively making sense of it when there's a lot of kind of things that don't have a clear narrative point and they don't have it's not a perfect image and text pairing but your mind because of how it works is going to try to make sense of it regardless right and i think that translated musically as well it was interesting to you know when we were listening to to the works in progress that tony was creating you know it we weren't listening to it as a linear score, right? Because this is, uh, it's generative linear uh, narrative, but it, you know, it, because it unfolds differently, it was interesting to kind of anticipate, well, what would this arc sound like? Yeah, or like there if it was no in this arc. order. It's yeah. Like these snapshots. No reliable arc. Yeah, no so, reliable arc. I mean, Tony, for you, how did you approach that in, in your making of the soundtrack for Automatiste? Yeah, I mean, you know, us working together, you know, just not improvisation, but just allowing those moments from the subconscious to spring forth as it's kind of been a part of our collective practice. You know, as collaborators, we've done some some rad stuff that I'm so proud of. And really, it's just the last six months, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, the, for me, a, a big part of the process was going through cassettes that I owned and that I've made over the years and just found sound uh, mini discs that I picked up while I was in Seattle. Um, 
mining my hard drive. I feel like I feel like old hard drives is the new like nuclear waste now. Like just going through all of my nuclear waste to try to find just the right moments, the right sprinkles, the right sounds that lead me down a path. Another part of it, incidentally though, was um, just taking time to let my subconscious do the work and cleaning up and getting into a routine for for the right kind of phrasing. Because some of it I did play with the keyboard and just just giving giving my subconscious the time to 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 do its do its job and you know making sure my space was clean. I mean, we really underestimate like the, you know the how how those uh, how your routine and how just kind of mundane things can lead to breakthroughs. Automatisse theme has a mechanical rhythm and surrealist ambiance, something you would imagine soundtracking a malfunctioning dream sequence. Tony told me later that the Automatisse theme is me rearranging an extended monophonic synth patch to make the pulsating effect of the tide, the way it rises and falls against the shore. There's also a vocal recording of DJ and Anya sourced from a Parisian collaborator saying the word Automatisse on repeat. Really quick, just before I... I go into that, I just wanted to point out that because this was kind of about diving into the unconscious when we were first talking with Tony, um, and I remember you were asking Tony, what's the vibe? Because like we hadn't really settled on the the whole concept of everything yet, but it was like essentially you're diving into the subconscious. So we need every potential emotion, every speed, every texture mixed together all in one bag because it's kind of like when you have a dream and you don't know if you're going to have something really nice show up in your dream or something really disturbing from your childhood show up in your dream. So I think there's no one that could have done a better job, I think, of pulling from every texture, every like the entire range of human emotion and experience from tempo to speed to clarity to messiness to harsh to twinkly. like to ASMR. To ASMR kind of stuff. Um, and I think that really helped us paint the picture of um, the subconscious rather than something more traditional or something more safe, like the range that he provided to show kind of all the inner workings of the protagonist and of our own subconscious minds, I think was really rich. Tony's next composition, Orca Dialects, is exactly what Anya talks about in painting a picture of the subconscious. It captures the mystery in nature's call, sounding like deep incantations in a temple as much as it does an elusive sound art piece. Ani and Deja asked for join noises, so Tony incorporated open source recordings of whale calls over virtual instruments from a Spitfire audio collection, which transformed whale songs into granular synthesis. familiar and unfamiliar sounds that elevates the entire presentation. 
As Anya and DJ said, they were inspired by a group of radical abstract painters in the 1940s from Montreal, Canada, who were inspired by surrealism and automatism, or the behavior of an individual who acts either unconsciously or by reflex, including behavior such as sleepwalking. Tony's next composition, Child Singing in the Distance, a field recording from his window when he was living in Berlin, sounds like a ghostly young voice filtered through the echo of an oceanside drain pipe. It feels exactly like the mental reflex to sink into nostalgia or bygone youth during a dream state. Tony's intention was to reflect the glorious, vast landscapes made by the 3D artists for the show with this sound. When we're talking about the different ways that fashion houses tend to show their presentations for London Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week, what have you, they usually go for a more concrete approach, which is a live stream or a film, but you really leaned into an experience. I think it's really surprising, I think, for most people who are interested in digital technologies and these kinds of creative fields because we really view them as like one very specific thing, but you were able to kind of pull it apart and make it more flexible and make it more human. Um, I feel like this is a really unique perspective and I'm curious about how you landed upon that you could use technology in this more intuitive way. Sure. I mean, it's interesting that you were saying that the approach to digital uh, that often people think it is inflexible um, and that it's kind of rigid. I mean, because for us, it gives us unbounding opportunity and ultimate fluidity, I would say, um, because I think for us as experiential artists, we're not focusing on showcasing the clothes. And by that, I mean, of course, it's important and it's an integral part, uh, and in this case, the points of the work as it is presented in London Fashion Week. But I think if you approach it with a lens of uh, creating an experience, um, then I, I think the sort of output uh, takes an entirely different form. And so our practice is based on, we have no allegiance to any one medium. So, you know, what that gives us is kind of looking at what it is it that we're trying to say and what the concept deserves um, and what vehicles it needs to kind of um, become its best self. And so for us, we always start a project um, asking what does the concept need? And because of this, this is no different, um, but it does give us the opportunity to approach the work in a more flexible way. And I think for us, it was because we are not working generally in fashion presentations, uh, we're, we're not really confining ourselves to sort of the catwalk approach. Um, we had already done 
Mithridates uh, presentation in the fall at Serpentine Gallery, which took the format of more of a performance installation, uh, which was, you know, already a different format um, than the catwalk and the traditional sort of presentation of uh, a collection. And so I think this was just different in that it had to be digital. And that was just because of tier five lockdown. Um, and so with that, I think starting with not trying to replicate a, you know, a digital version of a physical world um, or a physical presentation, I think by not trying to replicate that or make a substitute for that, um, it gave us a lot of opportunity. Yeah. I also think because of the concept, like maybe if the concept or the idea behind the collection was different, we would have been more open to a film. But the idea of the imagination and and subconscious processes, it just felt like such a missed opportunity to be like, here's a story about subconscious processes, you know? So we were really trying to be like, how can we take this? And like, also like the idea of a clean narrative also like doesn't really make sense. If we're talking about the subconscious, it's messy. You have associations that are happening that are completely out of your control that don't make sense. Images that pop out of nowhere, strange like juxtapositions, surprises, and film just wasn't the right format to engage people or kind of plunge them into the message behind the collection and the message behind this artwork. And so I think as it does for us all the time, the concept and what the message is and what how we're trying to engage people and immerse people all of that answered the question of the format. We didn't really like decide. It was all flowing. If it was a different collection, we might've done something completely different. Um, it was just trying to speak to, yeah, a, a way to immerse people in, in the feeling of the world. And so this is kind of what we ended up coming out with rather than it being like, what technically can we do? It was just concept driven and immersion driven. For listeners, Anya and Deja met their collaborators, Tony and Aaron, at an artist residency sponsored by Sonar Plus D and Beats by Dr. Dre at Factory, a Berlin-based self-described innovation network. Can you describe your first collaboration together and how it came about? So our first collab was was for um, this program that um, we brainstormed as a residency um, called By Appointment Only. And the idea was to find ethical ways to display art and to communicate the messages that we felt were imperative, you know, in and around November and December 2020. Deja and Anya were leaving the residency a bit earlier than everyone else. So they went first. Naturally, they went first for this um, by appointment only series. And we collaborated on bringing some sound and some poetry to their privacy trench coat. Maybe they could attest a bit more to the coat itself because it's just an amazing piece of art. Um, it's a, It blocks signals, but it, it's, it's more than that. Um, and it stands for more than that. So. so I think Tony was the first person to ever wear the coat. You, you, yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah, I, was. Tony, you were. I, I have <laughs> Yeah, you definitely were. I'll airdrop that to you. Okay. <laughs> Can you airdrop that to me? <laughs> Yeah, well, just to give a thumbnail on uh, 
the the code itself. So that piece is called I'd Rather Be in a Dark Silence Then. It's part of our larger privacy collection uh, in collaboration with the Museum of Contemporary and Digital Art based in London. And so this work uh, was really an exploration of a sort of a theme that we had been working with in, uh, in a work called On View, uh, which really deals with surveillance capitalism and also uh, privacy concerns. And so this coat, uh, as Tony had mentioned, is a signal isolating and blocking coat, meaning uh, that if you put any device uh, into this pocket, into the dark pocket, it will be completely offline. Uh, this also goes for passports with RFID in it, uh, any wireless communication um, is is simply not reachable, trackable, um, not exposed to identity theft, etc. So uh, this was very much a conceptual artwork, uh, but also you know at the crossroads of fashion and function as well. And so. In the fall, the work had been completed. Uh, we collaborated with Barbara Sanchez Kane, who is a designer, fashion designer here in Mexico City. And we had just completed the coat. We hadn't seen it in person yet. So the entire process was done uh, over, you know, WhatsApp, basically. <laughs> and it was shipped to Rome, uh, where it went on view for the first time at Mokta and Breezy Art Gallery's uh, exhibition for, um, it was, I think the show was called Renaissance 2.0, 2.0. And immediately after it came down, we're like, okay, well, we're here in Berlin. Ship it to us. We're going to document it, right? It was supposed to be just like, like, we don't even have a picture of a piece. So we're like, send it to us in Berlin. And it arrives right. and Tony's sitting there and we're like, oh my God, it's here. And then like Tony put it on. Yeah. So that yes, yeah, and then so we're we're testing it out, and we're like, okay, well, let's make a fashion film, or let's mm -hmm. you know take some art photography stills, and that quickly escalated in the room, talking <laughs> to Tony and Aaron about creating. Like, we're gonna take over the whole XR room, and let's just like explore making this coat and extending it into kind of a multimedia exhibition of photography. Um, of us wearing the coat, a film of someone like moving and kind of embodying it. Uh, Tony writing this poetry and making a beautiful score for it to exist in. So then we ended up having like these six layer, but also at the same time, very minimal, oddly, um, experience, which is I'd rather be in a dark silence than at Factory Berlin, the kind of exhibition of the coat, which is because it's the coat itself. What's funny is by design, it's very unassuming. It looks like a normal black trench coat. So in order to demonstrate the capability of the coat, because if you just like walked in and saw a black coat hanging up, you'd be like, oh, someone left their jacket. But if like we wanted to present it in a in a way that you walked in and you got the feeling of like the subjects around it, you were hearing, you know, Tony's voice talking about privacy. You had like the film. It was like, it was just creating the whole vibe in the room to reflect the principles and the kind of message and ideas behind the coat rather than just like hanging it up and be like, there's our signal blocking coat. And it ended up being so much more than I think we imagined when we first thought about it because of our collaborators and creating it within factory Berlin, which is just so such a cool energy, such a cool collaborative energy. And Aaron had a filter that he had already created mm -hmm. uh, the stealth mode uh, filter and 
it used a displacement map that made the face or the human body basically look invisible or sort of blend into its background. We were so, like, hmm. Yeah. So that's where we that's where we first I mean, I think a lot of Atamatiste um, you know, was built off of some of the experiments we had done together and kind of looking how uh, we could work together to integrate sound and uh, filters uh, as well as, you know, other uh, multimedia and uh, film and 3D aspects into the larger work. But I think it was interesting because that's where we had kind of started to create these discoverable QR codes within the experience, which we did for uh, the privacy collection exhibition. Uh, and then we brought that into uh, Automatiste as well. And I think uh, what was interesting is that people were using the filters, you know, not only on themselves or the other participants, but it also worked on the art uh, that you were in, in the coat as well. And that is how we got to um, making Automatiste more of a web browser desktop experience because we know that everyone's used to Zoom calls all day long. And so we know that we can pretty much guarantee that everyone has their desktop out, but they also have their phone on standby. So we're like, let's make those two partners work together. You know, this is completely reasonable. Pre-COVID, I don't think we would have ever, you know, approached a work that way, but we're like, let's take this to, you know, let's take advantage of this. And so the filters and automatise you can also use on the experience as well. And then of course, you know, beyond the experience too, uh, you can use them as, you know, a standalone uh, on IG. I'd love to share the story of how um, we, we got to the poem that was used, um, that was played throughout the um I'd rather be in a dark space than exhibition. It was a complete gift. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was late November, and and I you know I had dropped my phone twice in Berlin, and I was living with a very precarious roommate, and um, Deja and Anya were helping me to find the S bond so that I could go to meet up a, a new potential uh, apartment to stay in. And um, we were talking about the work then, and we, we, you know, we were just, they were just kind of communicating, we, we were just speaking openly about it. And when I was writing on the S-Bahn, it literally came to me. Um, I, was, I was finally, you know, like 10 kilometers removed from my crazy, aggressive, uh, rude criminal host. And... Um, and then so I, I wrote this piece and I really want to share it because um, during the checkout drinks DJ set, Anya asked me to share it. And it was so fresh in my mind that I didn't remember any of it. But now I want to redeem myself and share it. Is that is that OK if I share it? Please do. OK, so it goes. Privacy is fake now. It's all yours. I'm all yours. When data starts to bend each thought, every screenshot, a lens flare to the heart, bleeding to the screen, lean further unto me. Your sleeves caught on the gate now, tiptoe to the source, synthesize her thoughts, correlate, regulate, uneven forms are ignored. We're bored again, reborn as CSV lists, you and me. Passwords can't protect you, forging false reality, opposable appendages acting on their own. The phone has sprouted legs and it jogs back and forth to Amazon, the bomb beneath the thumb. They've won. Captured by the bouncer. Check your dreams unto me, an adorable machine. Nice and neat, symmetrical, electrocute, connectable, 
to vegetables with legs, forfeit all your dreams. Please endorse here now, tracking every rider on the S-Bahn, navigate their no-no spots, TikTok, TikTok. It was so perfect and such a gift. Yeah. I, I was just, where did this come from? Um, from the depths of, <laughs> of Tony's well. Uh, so thank you for that. But I think, I think it really, it, it created such a important bed and context for going into the exhibition and with hearing that throughout um, th- throughout the time and the space, I think just really contextualized and, and illustrated, you know, the capabilities of the coat, but like this emotional tone, like it, mm-hmm. it really, it, it took, it took it out of the cerebral and said, okay, this is a thing that it, it, rather than a panel discussion about privacy and, you know, problematic TNCs, instead you felt the weight mm-hmm. of a problematic TNC and you felt almost I, I don't know, you like the violation. You yeah. feel the violation of it, and it, it and it you address this on an emotional level, which I think really helped make it an immersive experience. You know, we weren't just physically, uh, you know, immersing people, but emotionally as well. And I think uh, privacy is fake now was really crucial to that experience. Mm-hmm when all of you collaborate with the first collaboration and the second collaboration, you take one idea, whether it's this violation of privacy or this subconscious stream of thought, and then you break it down in a way that does hit you on an emotional level. And I I really do think that brings the immersion one step further for a lot of the people that step into a lot of these general experiences. But I think this segues really nicely into our next question, which is similar to the shift during coronavirus. So the first collaboration came about with people gathered into a physical space, the factory creators lab. And whereas for the second collaboration, the group worked across several time zones. And obviously in the first collaboration, you guys are talking about, you know, meeting at the lab and then discussing this poem and getting really excited about one another. But in the second one, obviously a little bit different to have these kind of serendipitous meetings and collaborations. So what were some of the challenges of all of a sudden being in a centralized place, but then also moving into uh, a collaboration that was spread across several different cities? It, it really challenged me to uh, remain really firmly rooted in my practice and the things that I stand for and the, you know, the sensibilities that I've gotten over the years. And it, this was an opportunity for me to dispel a lot of doubt that I had because I didn't have, you know, the, the folks who brought me on board to really micromanage at all. There was like almost, it was the opposite of, it's, I, I don't know what the opposite of micromanagement is, but whatever it was, there, it was so hands off. <laughs> it was just so hands off that at, at times I felt like I could really be going the wrong direction with this. But when those kind of thought patterns popped up, I had to recognize them and call them out, you know, for what they are and not not tune into them. So it's kind of like a really an internal struggle um, that I would say I endured during the two months of, of creating this because um you know, I was asked to do a very amorphous, open-ended thing, and um, it was pretty difficult to disappoint because the expectations were kind of self-imposed. 
you know, yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Yeah, I think on our side, essentially the only way to pull something off like this was trust, like entirely, because it was simply not possible. It was literally a team across, I think, seven time zones. We had 3D team. We had Aaron doing filters, Tony doing music, a team in Istanbul doing development. We had a live action shoot here in LA. We had like, there were so many, there was a, the lookbook shoot happening in London, which then we had to get the photos here, print them, do the photo manipulation stuff. There were so many layers that we were like, the only way to possibly do this is essentially for this kind of digital opera. Who do we know, completely trust, know that we could say, here's what we're doing. Here's the general thing that we're thinking go do your thing, which is as creatives. And even if we're working with a client, that's what we really love. We love when we're just trusted, when people have seen what we've done and they're like, we want to see your interpretation. We want to see where you would take this because we like what you do as, as artists who appreciate that very much. Um, that's kind of the approach we took with this team. And it's the only way that it could have come together is we knew Tony, we knew that he goes on the S bond and writes a poem and we're like crying. So <laughs> it was very easy to be like, Tony, we want something all over the place, range of emotion, doesn't make sense, small sip, snippets, the lightest, the darkest, the fastest, the slowest, do your thing. And there was no need to micromanage because like I said, that, that trust was completely there. Um, same thing with our 3D team. Same thing with Aaron. Like we, there was a, a few of the departments that I think we were a bit more involved because there was a lot more places that it could go and it was like we wanted really specific things happen we had the machine learning aspect um but i think in general just having a team around us that we completely trusted and we gave them freedom because we respect and we like what they do within the constraints of the overall picture coming together um was the way that that happened and it was really glorious to let everyone kind of um run with it Definitely, and then see it come together. Definitely key is, I would say, everyone was down to play. You oh, know? yeah. And, and I think that that was key, where we kind of, Ani and I put together this sandbox, mm-hmm. and we're like, hey, Tony, hey, you know, immersive kind, hey, you curry. know, curry, uh, hey, Aaron, here, here's the sandbox. Uh, do you want to come play? You know, um, and I think that was very important that the the team was enthusiastic and just game to just dive in and go for it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that I think that was a, a huge aspect to it as well. But yeah, we we were this project was being worked on around the clock. Mm-hmm in as Anya said seven time zones and so we were up at 24 hours a day because right when like the right when our filter conversations discussions were done then suddenly our developer woke up and then right when he went to sleep then suddenly the 3d team woke up and so it was really like around the clock we had we were in conversations with everyone 24 hours a day it was fun a blur very fun I think what's really interesting is that this around the world several times in collaboration is a really good metaphor as well for the way the coronavirus vaccine also came together. Everyone working around the world, different collaborators and whatnot. And I'm curious if, well, one, I'm not sure if this is your uh, most 
global collaboration, but did working across seven time zones expand your understanding of what's possible in a collaboration? Most of our projects do have a few time zones in it, um, but this one was extreme. So I think there was just a general spirit and vibe to know this piece is so nurtured, well-fed and loved, you know, in many different ways in every aspect. And I think because of how multifaceted the project is, it had so much life in it. And it just, I I just want to say that it was it was so nurtured and you could really feel that. I definitely feel like it expanded my idea of what is possible. Definitely. Because I think even just working with our 3D team and sometimes when we work on experiences, we're just seeing a bunch of limitations. Like what is the shape of this room? Like, do we have power? Do we need to rent this stuff? Do we need to do like, like there's so many almost constraints that it weirdly exploded my idea of what is possible because suddenly when we didn't have to be like, what's the flow? Are there tickets? Where's our location? Like to be like the, this browser, people's web browser, their phones, their laptops are in a sense, like the venue are the host of this. It suddenly And then even working with the 3D team and being like, what is the architecture of this woman's house, the protagonist's house? Like, what does that look like? And being like, we don't have to actually build this. We don't need to have a fabricator call. We get to actually invent an entire world that doesn't need to exist in real life. The team doesn't need to fly to one place to make it. It felt very freeing and almost scary how many possibilities there suddenly were to design an entire world that a lot of the logistic constraints of making a work in person, we're not there, that it's actually scary how all of a sudden we're like, damn, so much is possible um, to make, even from architecture that never exists physically. And having someone like Tony's music um, suddenly jiving with the 3D and they've never met each other, never seen each other, and then their work is in concert. You know, it's it was really cool. It totally exploded my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I was blown away by that too. Well, Tony, it was like, I I love when you were on the Zoom call with, you know, our developers in Istanbul who you've never met (laughs) before. And Merlin, our editor, was was on the call. And, you know, this entire team where everyone's totally in their own zone, mm-hmm. like in their own cubby, yeah. in their own four walls, working on this project. And then we're all kind of, okay, wait, it's not just me in my room working <laughs> on this project. There's like 15 other people. And that is, uh, you know, demonstrated by jumping on these calls. And there's this kind of, I think, Tony, you were touching on that a little bit already where you're like this self-imposed sort of discipline and, and bar. I mean, how was it for you as well? Because, you know, we, we had a touch point with everyone on the project multiple times a day, but you were coming in, you know, on calls like, two times a week, but you were kind of in your own zone. How was that for you? And you were just focused on one aspect of the project so deeply. Yeah, it was a pleasant challenge. It was a better experience than typical because 
a lot of the times I kind of like have to take measures to insulate myself from the amount of revision that I do when I'm asked to do something creatively. It's like a lot of, a lot of opportunities folks will say, Hey, I want you to, to do your own thing. But then they're like, okay, that's cool. Can you make it more like this? Okay, great. Can you make it more like this? Can you make it more like this? That couldn't happen in this collaboration because I was already starting with things that were a hundred percent mine. So sure, there was some refining that needed to do back and forth, but there weren't instances where I was told what I did naturally reflexively wasn't good enough. And so, you know, without that there, it was just, again, just me against myself in most aspects of it. Like, hey, Tony, how detailed can you go without being prompted, you know? And I think that was a wonderful exercise. And I think that's really, it was a gesture again of friendship and trust to, um, to afford someone the autonomy to be able to sonify this thing. So it's like, there's, there's just these, this indelible individuality emanating from every facet of this, uh, collaboration from from the visual from the coloring the color grading was just beautiful it was just beautiful the randomized subtitles the language beautiful but it doesn't come from a single source it's coming from everything and in a sense it's a reflection of of just how much how we reflect and refract the light that that we receive over time you know i'm not just i'm tony i'm an individual for sure but without everyone's impressions that make that, you know, that culminate in who I am without all of my friendship, without all of my tragedy that I've experienced in my life, all of that is, um, it amounts to a single individual kind of similar to how all of those influences and culminated in this amazing, amazing project that I just feel so fortunate to have been a part of. Yeah. I think Tony, what you speak to is, um, this when you're talking about everyone being in their cubby hole and having to kind of cultivate this self-discipline it's what a lot of creatives have gone through in their experience in the past year essentially being by yourself in a very isolated state and having to find this validation in yourself and it's so beautiful that you had this project where they let you be yourself and find that freedom but at the same time it's kind of like a war against yourself too it's like is it good enough or you know but at the same time I've been given so much freedom too so it's a trust exercise with the people that you're working with but then a trust exercise with yourself like do you personally trust yourself without looking for Mm -hmm. you know very strict feedback from other people that's really fascinating and and to just think that um you know what I furnish is going to be physically held by thousands of people like that's pretty daunting and it's a huge responsibility and um you know i i just thankful to be trusted to be able to produce that i know some of the music is kind of obtuse it's coming from tape so it's not going to sound uh pristine like a digital you know ableton track on every device and and, you know i even noticed some of those artifacts in the uh in the BBC coverage of it, and it didn't dissuade them from sharing. And so maybe there's a little bit room to explore um, in terms of what we consider to be digestible, acceptable sound. Maybe it doesn't need to be pristine and 
and perfectly mixed and mastered. You know, I put a little bit of love into the mix and stuff, but, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not an engineer per se, but I think even we should afford, you know, some personality and some, uh, some room and what we deem as, as listenable, you know, we can't just keep getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Jesus, give me a break, you know, like, Yes. I, yes. Sign me up for that. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's right. Cause it's, it's choosing, do I want to be more technically sound or do I, do I want to have vibe? You know, do I want to elicit emotion or do I want to, you Impress. know, get a A plus on this quiz, on this technical quiz. And I think, you know, what's so interesting is that this project was so technically complex, but it wasn't complicated and we weren't limiting ourselves to, you know, is this the best take technically, or is this the best take vibe wise? And I think even with the live action film, like this is slightly out of focus, but like the way that her hand is like reaching with like such desperation, we have to use this clip. Like, I don't care if it's out of focus, like that's the one that's the most powerful viscerally. And like, those are the choices we are making throughout. Yeah. And it's interesting, Tony, and it's great to hear too about your process and your experience on creating Automatiste with us, because as you say, it wasn't so feedback driven. It was front loaded with, here's the concept, like we were saying before, here's the sandbox. We know you're down to play. We've played before. You we know, like it. We, yeah, we <laughs> like it. We play well. And then here we go. And so it was less of a you know, like you said, of course, there were refinement. It was kind of like a sculpture where we all kind of at the same time were adjusting and chipping away and then adding some more clay, Mm -hmm. taking a step back together, collectively looking at it and, you know, responding to the adjustments that needed to happen. Um, But I think ultimately it was, it was more of a process of, how do we weave all of these elements together, right? I think we were more seamstresses in this process than we were, you know, um, kind of calculating every little aspect, which you would maybe kind of expect because it was so multifaceted, creating machine learning uh, versions of of the lookbook, right? So we shot that our ended literal- up in the filter on your face. <laughs> right, and it was so multi-layered, right? Because we, we, we shot the lookbook and then we shoved all of that through uh, a GAN, a machine learning model, and then it spit something out. And so there was this, you know, a sort of subconscious automatic machine creation, computer imagination, computer imagination of the work. And then we printed those out physically. And then we were using those as props in setting them on fire. Yeah. And using those as props in the live action film, but then also giving them, you know, to Curry uh, and Lou, our 3d team, and they were integrating those. And then the sort of ripped and distorted and collage uh, machine learning and lookbook images that we did on site were then perfectly scanned and brought into a 360 immersive lookbook that you could free roam around. And all of these come together in an unexpected way. And this ability for the entire team, uh, Tony, um, 
you know, our, our uh, collaborate, collaborators at Immersive Kind and such for all, us to all come together and not be so worried about polish, but being in perfection, but being like, you know what, we really own where we are in this process. We ch- trust each other as a team. Um, we trust our own practice and allowing, you know, perfection to not get in the way was, I think, integral and also uh, on brand with the concept of automatic art making. We were definitely more interested in experimentation than perfection. Like that was, we were committing, like if we wanted to make just a perfect film and have a red and have the dream location, just make it perfect. Like we could have done that too, but we were like, we committed to like going for it, for trying something completely new, doing something experimental, all remote, hasn't been done in this way before. And so we were just like, that was our focus. We were like, if we're going to experiment, we're going to go all the way. We're not going to basically be safe on any front. Yeah. Which could be scary, especially Whitney, you were talking earlier about the inflexibility of technology and, and, and it is while it gives us unbounding opportunity and possibilities of mediums to work with it also, you, you know, it's true, you know, it, it takes, it takes, you know, it's easier to draw a, a line on paper than it is to to code um, that line being drawn on the screen. It takes a little bit uh, more time. Just, you know, practically speaking, you have to type that code out and that takes more time. And it's because of that, the feedback loop is uh, a, a little bit longer in that process. You have, you know, there's more time that you have to wait. There's more of a waiting game in terms of, you know, okay, how is this going to look and trying it out? And I think that everyone was willing to experiment on such a technical project. I think, you know, everyone was quite brave, you know, the Mm -hmm. entire team. I really like when you said uh, that you were seamstresses putting all these different pieces together and that there's a fine balance between this polish and technicality and then also this soul and humanity in these digital experiences that I feel like many people often interpret as cold or um, a little bit intimidating. And I guess one of my questions is that oftentimes in a digital presentation, you can often be able to get more eyes on it because people don't have to go to like a physical fashion week presentation. I mean, obviously people view it on YouTube and whatnot, but um, there is something a little bit more personal than also potentially more more able to be disseminated among people. How do you contend with the scrutiny of the work that you put, these really ambitious works that you put into uh, the world and into the web? How do you deal with maybe pressures of putting your work out there? I think we're our harshest critics, at least to our face. I'm sure there's people that don't like what we do, but I feel like we hold ourselves to probably the most critical standard, but it's like almost Tony like, was saying, yeah. yeah, similar to what Tony said. It's like, we expect so much more of ourselves than what we do and what we put out into the world. And I think the world expects. There's a point I remember before setting Automatis live, you know, because it was in our power to press the live button. We're like, let's add this 
thing here. Oh, remember that sound that Tony made that didn't make the final cut? Tony, I have to say we were pulling in things like here and there that weren't in the final master because we were like, but this vibe is so good and it just mm-hmm. needs it. This tapestry needs it right now. So we were like and, and tweaking and judging until, until, you know, 1045 AM GMT when it went live that Monday, you know, just these little, little tweaks and then to press live and then to instantly in 20 minutes see on everyone's stories. It's like, it's so weird because I just had this moment where I unsynced our Dropbox. Cause I was like that, this stuff is taking up 650 gigs and I need some space. Um, <laughs> and, and how freeing that was. Cause it's like the project is no longer in our shared team Dropbox. It is now, you know, on other people's screens around and, the world and around <laughs> the world. And I think this is completely unique, uh, for at least Anya and I's practice because so much of our work is while it is digital, very digital, you know, we've gone to great lengths to hide it. And also it takes place in a physical space, you know, and you have full control over what that experience is and who else is in the space. And, you know, what the entry looks like, what the exit looks like, where, how are they walking into the work? And we have control over all of these elements, but when they're experiencing a work that is of an experiential nature, um, meaning they need to clock time with it, they need to, to kind of, you know, the more they attend to it, the greater the return on their experience. And we have no control over those aspects. So I do think it's very interesting because someone might be receiving a phone call, you know, while this is happening and it's entirely different, uh, mode to create for, but yeah, releasing it too. Yeah. It's the first time we've had a project. Like, of course we share documentation of our projects online. So that's like globally digested, but to have people in Berlin, people in London, people all over the world that it's not like, here's a link to see what we did over here, but to be like, here's a link. You can view the thing that was meant to be viewed on your browser and like having the whole world able to see not representation of the work, but able to see the work itself as it was meant to be consumed. I found really exciting, but also like you said, really scary because yeah, that's a bigger audience to be like, what is this? But this isn't atypical for you, Tony, as a musician, right? Because you, you press publish and it goes out to the entire world and they're experiencing it, you know, maybe on different playback systems or earbuds or whatever, MP3s versus waves. But yeah, how is that for you? Was this different? I mean, that's usually the hardest part. This, you know, I, I, I don't often have trouble generating the music because that's just a constant stream that I'm kind of like digging a bucket into and dumping, you know, into whether it's the Automatis project or if it's to like my own musical endeavors, that stream, that river is always flowing. I do feel like, you know, to a degree, when we publish things online, I've always internalized it. And this is my own sonic trauma speaking, but it it seems like an interruption to the flow. It seems like a dam because it's no longer mine anymore, you know, now it belongs to the world, you know, and um, it's always really difficult to hand over. You can't get it back. Yeah, you can't get it back. You can't, you know, in a sense, you don't want to, you want to devote all of your attention and um, your wherewithal into 
the thing that you furnish over. But I mean, again, what makes Atama Tea so special is because it's still unique for everyone. It's still a unique experience for everyone. It's not like they go to the URL or they're led to the URL through whatever path they take. If it's a search engine, if it's following hashtags, if it's looking at the brand's uh, Instagram account, if it's reading uh, press coverage on it, if it's the BBC uh, click, you know, segment on it, um, they still get a different experience. But I don't know. It's just it's just something hard. It's always like a little death to relinquish, you know, that sound and or that quote unquote final product. And as soon as you listen to it, you know, you start to imagine, oh, well, what if this part was in there? Well, what if that part was in there? Maybe maybe people don't get it. Too and, late. And, and again, that's like, yeah, too late for real. And it, and it's like a little death every time you, you press publish. All of you have been working in these fields for a long time now and have seen how drastically people have taken to new digital mediums during the course of this past year. How have you seen the role of digital art expand? And are there any critiques or concerns you would raise about how other creators are going about it? Yeah, I think even just in the last month, there's been like an entirely new chapter and level of attention to the digital art world that is, I think, pretty unprecedented. Um, Deja and I, it's so funny, we were joking around about like three years ago, the digital art scene where it was like you had the main art fairs and then you had the the fairs that were like kind of satellite fairs and then the digital art fair and all of, all of the, the kind of events around digital art in the art world were like 20 people in a basement the same 20 people at all the events all around the world, everyone's super passionate, super supportive, super just trying to be like, will the art world ever take digital art seriously? Like it was this little niche community where literally everyone knows everyone. And then suddenly, especially with the NFT craze happening right now, um, this community is like at the center of this giant, everyone's like, oh, we can make money from digital art. And like jumping in. Suddenly it's a money-making opportunity. Yeah. And so there's so much interest and it's, it's really like intense. We haven't even like really jumped in entirely to like evaluate what's going on in the community, but it's, it's very um, interesting. And I think it's also says something that there have been people in this space thinking about how to use technology and how to make digital work and how to express themselves with digital tools for years. Um, And suddenly the second it becomes tied to, oh, I can own that digital thing, then it suddenly becomes something that the rest of the art world and the world generally is starting to take more seriously because the idea of private property is suddenly available. And I think me personally, I'm a bit suspicious of the sudden interest and it kind of makes me feel like a little bit of this gold rush while it probably will help a lot of digital artists is also motivated by something that um, I hope doesn't kill the, the spirit of the digital art community, which has just been gathering and sharing and experimenting for years because that's what they love and that's what they think is interesting. So I hope that we can hold on to some of the, the creative juice and experimental aspects and not get kind of swept up. 
Right. And I, I hope that the case is that those who have been experimenting with digital art from the beginning, uh, not because it was novel, not because it was profitable, but because it was the experimentation and their practice that they needed to do because they couldn't do anything else. And therefore they've forged and invented new mediums and new ways of art making. I hope that the commercial appeal of digital art and the ability to capitalize on it um, doesn't take advantage or appropriate the work that has been done by the digital art community, which as Anya has said, has been probably the same 10 people, 20 people in a, in a basement at some obscure festival that no one really cared about. Or we spoke to audiences <laughs> like of four people many times. And they were the same four people the in Hong Kong as they were cities. in Manchester or such. So I hope that, because we've seen this a little bit, how, experiential marketing has appropriated um, the this long, rich history of installation and performance art. And I think the danger is here as well, uh, where, you know, these tools are very useful and the experimentation has been happening quite a while. And these tools have been honed by this community. And all of a sudden, it's very useful for fashion, it's very useful for conferences. And so I hope that although I'm not 100% optimistic, but you know, I hope that the artists who have built the foundation for this are um, able to reap the benefits as well. Instead of have it be like a new research pot, a new Pinterest for the rest of the world to be like, oh, here's what we can do digitally. And then just kind of like take those ideas and hire an agency to learn how to do it. And then the people who kind of figured all of that out are like, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be good to try to figure out some way to make sure that doesn't happen because there's a lot of passion and a lot of creativity. Tony, do you have any thoughts on non-fungible tokens on the Ethereum blockchain for digital artists, especially as someone who does production and obviously releases tracks? Because this is, I can understand what DJ and Ani are talking about in terms of once it's this quote unquote, gold rush for people and they realize that you can monetize off of it, it on one hand democratizes your ability to release your music and, and your art and be paid for it. But on the other hand, it might leave original creators behind or dilute the general ethos that has been driving the small community for a really long time. Um, so as a musician, how do you see this new surge in monetizing your work from non-fungible tokens or NFTs impacting your individual practice? Whew, that's a loaded question. I'm kind of ignorant on the topic. My exposure to it is fairly limited, but I think, as you said, it seems like kind of like a gold rush fad kind of thing now. I think there's two sides to it that kind of I personally am curious about. I seldom, like, I love manifesting the music that I create into a physical, tangible object to sell. I do a lot of cassette runs. Um, I make custom cassettes. I take existing cassettes and I dub over them and I leave some of the old album and I sell it for 
and I never make much money off of it. I think the idea of an artist generating income from their art is taboo in and of itself. Like there's this myth of the starving artist that seems to feed a lot of um, narratives. And so when these kind of opportunities come for an artist to make a living off of their art, it's almost kind of contradictory to what we think of it as an artist in the first place. Like if you're not struggling to eat, you're eating ramen or living off Cheetos like Basquiat, then, you know, who are you as an artist? You're not really, you know, you're not really living off your art. Um, I don't know much about the craze. My friend invited me to a platform, I think it's called Zora or something, where I could mint my art. And when he invited it to me, he invited it to me solely because I've always been someone who wants to make limited editions of my sound because sound itself is not tangible. You know, it's not like a culinary art. It's not like a textile. It's not like, a, you know, um, sound itself is an intangible thing. So for someone to own, quote unquote, own my piece is just a weird space that, um, it's just a weird space. I don't know. I'm interested to see how it plays out. Um, I've seen posts on Instagram where artists I really love are minting things. And then I swipe one story away and they're like, this is just, you know, a capitalist manifestation in the art world that isn't welcome. Um, I'm a bit older, I'm 33. So no, I, I mean, I'm trying to wrap it up because I really don't know much about it, but I'm like 33. I'll, I'll continue to make tapes if um, someone offers me a pretty penny to mint my art. I'll definitely consider it because it's not until I'm, I'm posed with the opportunity that I can really gauge what the ethics for it are. One of, one of the interesting things is that the same tools that give us freedom, you know, digital freedom, the ability to research anything that we want at any time, the ability to release our work in, um, you know, at the click of a button, you know, on our own terms, the ability to have access to technology to create works, all of this, you know, it's always been called leveling the playing field, but at the same time, those same tools are, can be exploited and manipulated mm -hmm. by capitalism. And so it's this kind of double-edged sword where, you know, the same tools that are bringing us democracy are the same tools that can leave us vulnerable as well. Yeah. So I think we're seeing that manifest in, in privacy and social media and, um, you know, capitalizing on IP, um, that is, free you know, content. and free content, you know, as well. And just one quick thing to speak to Tony's point. Um, I, I think that our, our thoughts are kind of suspicious thoughts about the current hyper on NFTs. Isn't a question about whether digital artists or musicians should be able to sell and monetize from their work. That's like a total given for us. I think that's something also that has been going on for a few years. So we're not um, super commenting on whether that should be happening. Like 100%, the structures in place for artists of all kinds to get paid for their work. 
are simply not there um, and they're not sustainable for pretty much That's any exactly artist that I, I know. Thinking. So I think, yeah, it's, it's not even a question about that. I think that is amazing that the capability for artists to do that and like to sell directly to someone that's super strong. It's more um, the rush of people who haven't really cared until they thought they could make a buck suddenly rushing to the space. But I think it will benefit artists, but I just want to also not just be like, yay, come in here. Because I also think there's some sort of proceed with caution. Yeah. yeah, proceed yeah with I, caution. I, I mean, I <laughs> think at the core of it, it shows that the avenues for monetizing folks right now, are insufficient. So that's why it's a craze because it's, it's another avenue to, you know, kind of make an honest buck off of your work in a way that is kind of aligned with the times and even progressive in the sense of the technology involved in it. But, um, you know, I think whether or not folks decide to engage with it is completely theirs. Like I, I'm, I think our work blurs so many mediums and even like, just the concept of a fashion presentation that just enough includes the clothes in it, you know, but it's really more of what is implied that leaves an impression on the viewer of this automatise work um, in particular. If NFTs will, will allow me to, you know, pay my rent this month, then, then in that sense, for that artist, it will be a blessing. But that still doesn't stop that artist from going out onto the middle of a highway and standing up with a canvas and saying, Hey, this is, this is a million dollars. Like, um, I think that the technology shouldn't take us away from real life interaction when that is an actual possibility again, you know, if it's an, I'm probably just really sounding very harsh to someone who is in favor of, of NFTs or against it. But again, I chalk it up to my ignorance. If, if someone can give me some resources to better, understand this i'm definitely open to it my instagram's at tony cruz underscore hook me up and um i can get some more info but until then i got tapes available on Bandcamp, so fuck with me <laughs> i love that i love that um yeah i guess one of my questions would be if this gold rush as we called it would it take away and obviously this huge first time interest in digital art what the impact will be on physical art and what the future of that will be. But I don't know if anyone has any commentary on that before we move on to the last question. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, so if you sell someone like a huge image, you know, like Aaron, I think minted a piece recently. And I imagine that his piece at its full resolution would cover a small cul-de-sac like it will cover a small neighborhood when folks have this file or or the ownership of it are they print are they then supposed to print it themselves and frame it themselves because that's a whole nother avenue in and of itself the framing of one's art the you know like what if i buy a piece of his but then i print it using a xerox printer or or i take it to a really high-end place and get it print it in a very large manner. Like what are the ownership rights? Like if I sell a song to you, I don't give you the the right to remix and, and do what you want with it, but folks are going to do that anyway. You know, these are just questions that come to mind. Yeah. I'm not so sure about 
um, some of the more like legal aspects, but from, uh, from an artist's viewpoint, I think more about the presentation of the work. You know, when you just told me, are they going to print it on a Xerox or are they going to like bring it into a proper mm-hmm. art photography print house? You know, these kinds of things. Are they viewing it on the right system? Is the general ambience of the room, you know, is the light down enough so that they can really experience the contrast of this piece, you know? And, and I think digital art and I would just say any, any art that isn't physically presented and, and kind of packaged, prepackaged for you to either go in your home or whether it be an installation or a live performance where the artist is controlling the majority of the elements of how that work is presented. I think, you know, they get to do what they want, you know, with that work and present it how they want. And that is scary potentially, but also. I know, that's terrifying. But also like. I have a do, wrench to do throw. You. Yeah, yeah. I have a wrench to throw in the conversation, which is I actually think by problem with what I think is a gold rush is that the people who might be going and buying up a bunch of this art are not going to print it. Not that they're not going to print it, but the point is I don't think they're buying it to live with it or because they love it. I think they're buying it because they think the market's going to boom and they just want to have the link to say that they own a piece of this thing because it's going to appreciate over time and they'll make money on it. Kind of like having a library of books you don't read. Exactly. Like similar to that where I don't necessarily think that And it's fine if people don't want to print it. I'm not expecting people to, but I'm also saying in addition to like people who want to own it because they love it, they want to support the artists and they just, you know, want to participate in an economy that's putting money in artists' pockets, which I think is important. A lot of people are just going to go and be like, who's hot right now and buy it, never print it, never look at it. But when it's time to cash in, be like, ooh, what can I get for this stuff I own? Which is stocks. Like it's a stock. And that I think is... Um, yeah, just going back to the printing, it's like assuming someone is buying it because they really love it and they want to see it all the time versus they want to own it as an asset. The Serpentine released a a paper um, late 2020 talking about pretty much the expiration of the models and the avenues and the, just the art industry at, at a whole, their ability to, support new types of work, whether specifically works with advanced technology, right? Because, you know, a painting needs a particular kind of maintenance, um, but an interacting, an interactive installation, uh, first of all, it can take so many different forms. The way to maintain that work is completely custom and unknown until it's made um, of how, how do you keep up with the work? Also, you know, the tools that are needed, what, what I think is interesting about Serpentine's document is that they, they call out that a lot of the skills that are needed to, to support this new artwork that is using advanced technology, that they're all skills outside of the art industry, which means that while it's becoming uh, a prominent, the use of advanced technology in artwork is becoming a prominent part of the art world, the art industry has no way to support that in terms of how 
it's an anomaly um, and it's a complete experimentation, um, but it also is relying on production chops um, from, you know, the entertainment industry Mm -hmm. or production chops from, um, you know, from uh, computer science and human computer interaction and, and, and theme parks, you know, it's using the production pipeline completely outside of the art industry. And it's like, how does the art industry respond to that? Because the art industry really needs to be able to support those kinds of works, whether they're in a museum or in a gallery, or how do I own a complicated, you know, digital artwork? And, you know, I think it's important that, you know, that, that part is sorted out because it will allow for, um, advanced technology to really have a place in the world of what is considered fine art or art that is or culture yeah Yeah. and I think yeah the the new forms of expression that technology um brings about and makes possible need to also be met with structures and institutions and budgets and also the models for models for artists being paid who make that kind of work that no one can buy and hang above their couch, which currently super blue, I think is a new model, which is essentially like experiential installations all in one place. It's a ticketed experience. So the art world is trying to figure out how to kind of grapple with selling experiences, how to learn how to have a pipeline for producing highly complex digital works and works that use advanced technologies um, but yeah, new forms of expression require new forms models, of infrastructure. Yeah, new infrastructures, and I think we're at a time where a lot of the big institutions that have been putting off going into that or just refusing to like use digital art because they don't want to deal with it now don't really have the option because everything is going in that direction. And also, the European Union has the the there's like a big horizon program where they're giving money to, you know, cultural institutions to digitize, to get familiar with new technology. So there is a movement and a recognition that that needs to happen. But I think that when I think about the future of the art world, I'm like, I would really like to see the models for both artists who make that kind of work to be compensated for it properly, as well as institutions not be, so scared or nervous to take it on because they're equipped with the tools to handle forms of expression that require a bit more production and scale and different kinds of know-how. And it's going to create, it's going to require a revolution in infrastructure in the art world in order to support and keep up with uh, the new ways that artists are creating, because I'm not worried about the artist's ability to create in these new mediums and the future of art because of, you know, the artist's scope and capabilities. I'm more concerned about the ability for their artworks to land in a place that is sustainable, supported, and feasible. What do I hope? Where will it go? What do I hope? I hope that a new physical medium for music surfaces, one that isn't so deeply ingrained with social media, one that isn't so deeply ingrained with accessibility, a physical medium that requires, that demands its own experience, kind of similar to popping a tape in a tape deck, popping a CD in a CD player, popping a vinyl 
dropping a vinyl on a record player. I'd like for perfection to be less of a requisite in order for folks' music to get out there, meaning clarity confined to a specific decibel range. And, he, and I think that mixing and mastering and those, those niche roles can still be important, but I'm not feeling the hegemony of music and sound right now. And it'd be nice if, if you had to lean in a bit closer to hear something or, or if music caused you to maybe need to stand away from the speaker. Because those can be intentional choices that we make and that we choose to ascribe to. However much I may love for that to happen, can't say it's necessarily realistic, but um, it would just be really nice if there became more room for the individual in every experience music-wise. I don't know much about anything else. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Whitney, for having us. Thank you, Whitney. It was so nice. Thank you so much for joining us on the Electronic Beats podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, Poise on the Intersection Between Art, Fashion, and Digital Technologies. If you like this podcast, we would love for you to rate us on Apple Music, follow us on Spotify, or tag us on Instagram at Electronic Beats. Catch you next time.